0: What a beautiful morning of worship and and singing. I hope you're glad you decided to be here today. Nice to see everybody. Greetings to you that are live streaming with us over the web. It's important to make these worship times a priority, isn't it? I'm glad, I'm glad you guys chose to do that this morning. Pastor Greg is obviously not here. My name is Bob Priest and he's given me the the trust and the privilege to stand in for him while they enjoy the the holy land. I'm I'm hoping they're having a great trip. Hopefully you've remembered to pray for them this week and pray for them as they return soon. Uh, I have been part of this church with my wife and my kids for many, many years now. It's hard to imagine. My hair was probably a little darker back when we first came. And uh, it's become more than just a place that we attend church on Sundays. Southwoods has really become a part of our family. And I look around here and I know a lot of you guys feel that way about this place as well. It's a pretty, pretty neat blessing we get to experience here. And as we grow closer in a setting like this, like family does, we start to become aware perhaps of some Closely kept secrets or some personal details of each other's lives that we might not otherwise know because our lives go in such different directions the the rest of the week. And for some of us, that kind of sharing comes really easy. The extroverts among us. But for some of the others that are, are closer to the introvert side of the scale, it can be like an internal wrestling match often to think, how much of myself do I really want to share with these people? But I've decided this morning that this is a safe place after all these years. And so I want to I wanna be very open with you guys. I have something I'd like to begin by sharing with you. So here goes. Dan, how do I say this? I really like the children's animated movie Frozen. <laughs> I've said it. The Disney princess movie, Frozen. You guys know it? It was introduced into our life by my grandchildren, and we have watched it and listened to it way too many times. I, uh, I don't often say that I like, well, you know, I like football, too, <laughs> OK? Um, the most memorable story in this little Disney thing and the character that I really enjoy of all things is this little princess anna. Princess Anna is a delightful little character that Disney has put together and I love that she's impulsive and fun. I love that my granddaughters enjoy this kind of my my grandkids enjoy this kind of character. The the character starts life in kind of a lonely, sheltered fashion. And much of it is spent as an orphan. They lose their parents in the movie. But Anna finds a way to find joy in her world. And that's what we're talking about this morning, sustainable joy. And this little character, come what may, finds a way to find joy in her world. I won't tell you a lot about the story in case you haven't seen it, but as it plays out, she's very immature, and she has to learn about life and relationships. And as she grows, and as the movie comes to its culminating moment at the end, she just has this this brilliant, unselfish moment where she... I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to watch it for yourself. But because of that unselfish moment of sacrifice that Anna Portrays in this little children's movie? I really like her. I like that character. And the character is played by someone you may know too. The voice for Anna is Kristen Bell, a very talented young lady, an actress and a singer. And our extended family has watched it and listened so many times that I kind of know her voice now. So I was watching a game or something one day, and all of a sudden I hear Princess Anna on the TV, and it was one of these it was one of these rent a car commercials. And uh, rent a truck, in fact. And, and she's asking one of the people about what does your company have in terms of a big truck? So she asks this fellow, and he goes into his whole spiel about... Uh, what they can do and she's sitting up in a big truck as this happens and then he's just about to get done with his wonderful sales presentation when she interrupts him with something like oh yeah like she's really excited about this big truck and and she leans in with a big grin to this guy and she says big trucks are kinda my jam and then she giggles and laughs like a little girl it says big trucks are kind of my jam with a big smile on her face. Now, I checked with my kids because I don't, I'm not always up on the cool lingo. It used to be that if you said something was your jam, it was that your favorite song had just come on, right? And I step back ways. It used to be if I heard that's my jam, it was my dad saying, I want the strawberry preserves for my toast, right? But now your jam can be anything that brings you joy in your life. It could be your grandkids, it could be your pets, it could be your favorite football team on Sunday night football, again, right? It could be sunsets at the lake, or power tools, or classic cars, or maybe that certain dessert that that certain someone makes for you. Maybe your jam is old movies. You know, it could be just about anything, anything that brings you joy in your life. On this particular day, if you had seen my granddaughter, she might have said, my jam is making snow angels in the corn pile down at the cider mill. Isn't that fun? If you talked to my friend Dan, back in early October, he might have told you, no, I can't really tell you what my jam is. I'm going to have to show you. And that's when he'd probably break out some pictures like he showed me recently from his trip out to the, the Colorado Rockies to see the turning of the aspen. That's part of it. Watch this next one. It's just spectacular. He said that's what it looked like. There's no enhancement. There's no HD anything. That's the picture that he took. He's a fabulous photographer. And in that moment, he'd probably tell you, that's my jam. Have you got a jam? Do you dare to tell anybody your jam? Take a minute, tell the people around you. I'm serious, I want you to do this. It's not just enough to shake hands in the morning. Tell the people near you what your jam or jams are. I'll give you a minute. Funny, funny how that kind of builds, isn't it? It starts a little, little shy, and then all, Now I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be able to turn them off, Kurt. So, wh- why don't we, why don't we come back now? Hopefully, that was fun. Anybody say God is my jam? Anybody say religious stuff, or church is my jam? I didn't hear that one out there. Let's start with a prayer, and then we'll dig in a little further. Maybe get a little more serious here this morning. Thank you, Father, for joy. For the, the things that make us smile and laugh and feel alive and feel like you care and you, you have purpose for us. Help us to take into our spirits this morning uh, from your spirit what it is you want us to learn about the joy you have for us in our lives. Um, for those who maybe aren't feeling a lot of joy this morning, I pray that you'd have a special word to their hearts. Bless us as we read your word, as we think about these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, for lots of reasons, some unfair, but some very valid reasons, God and religion and church don't usually make it onto the jam list, right? In fact, for a lot of people, when we start talking about God, they have the immediate picture of God is not a source of joy. God is a cosmic killjoy. I don't know how often I've heard that phrase recently, but Somehow I've got it stuck in my my mind. God is a cosmic killjoy to a lot of people. But when we read in the Bible that God is the creator, we realize that he's also the creator of joy. Our God is the originator of all joy. And it's very much a part of his plan that each one of us experience that joy in our lives. It's very much a part of his plan that we experience his joy in our lives. How's he going to accomplish that in a world like this one? What starts in a very personal way with God. If you've been around Christianity or if you've been around church much, you've probably heard one of our central teachings, which, which is once you get your life reconciled to God, Once you've come to him through faith in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, then God moves into personal relationship with us. And it's said in a mysterious way somehow, he actually dwells within us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And that is his way of bringing this kind of joy into into our lives. It's a mystery. We don't understand, but somehow when the Spirit of God comes in, It affects us. This has an effect on us, and the metaphor that's used to describe that effect is fruit of all things. We bear fruit of God's kind of life in our lives, in our experiences, in our decisions. An important element of that fruit from the Holy Spirit is joy, there's a commonly referenced passage from the Bible about this fruit. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it for us in a moment. It's in Galatians 5, 22, 23. A lot of you may have memorized that as kids. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit. We're gonna read it in a minute before. Let me just let me just say this by way by the, the way the morning's gonna go. I plan to share a lot of scripture verses about joy with us this morning because it is a pervasive message throughout the Bible. I'm going to use the New Living Translation, which is the little Bibles that we have in the chairs, but I'm also going to use, at times, the New International Version, which is what I kind of started to read a lot as a young man that helped me in my faith. So you'll see both on the screen. You can try to keep up. If you want to try to find them in the Bible, that's okay, but if you just want to be comfortable to read from the screen, that's that's okay too. So Galatians 5, talks about the, the fruit of the Spirit, and it says this, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Now, like I said, that's a very familiar passage to a lot of Christians. You go to the Christian bookstore, you're probably going to see some little decorations, right, or something on a shirt about the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you have... Something hanging on the wall of your home that communicates these things. It's a very familiar passage. And often what we do as we, as we read that, we focus on the nine elements of the fruit. And we go into evaluation mode and we think, how am I doing with that? How am I doing with patience in my life? How am I doing with self-control? Is God really helping me have more of that in our life? And that's a really good exercise. But then we tend to skip over that last line. Look back at that again. There is no law against such things. I want to play the skeptic for a minute. Is that really true that there's no law against such things? You know, a sincere, a sincere skeptic, someone questioning whether God really cares about our joy, might challenge that point. You can almost hear them saying, what do you mean there's no law against such things, you religious people? Aren't there hundreds of laws against such things in your religion? In fact, the core teachings, practices, and traditions of religions around the world seem to have the goal of obstructing us from joy. Isn't religion really just about controlling people? Have you heard that one? If God wants me to experience joy, why does he put these rules and laws in my way? Why does he dictate boundaries on the way and with whom I share my love? Why require my willing submission to authorities in the government, in my workplace, in my family, when I really don't respect those people? what's up with the money thing with God? Why does he put this rule about a tithe? It's like a God tax that he puts on my hard-earned money when I'd have a whole lot more joy if I could just go spend that. And what about this thing of giving sacrificially for others? Why would I do that? Wouldn't I be happier taking care of what I want instead of giving it to people who haven't earned it? Why restrict me, religious people, from my appetites and my indulgences which exist to bring euphoria and joyful release of some kind into the struggles of my life. That skeptic can be really compelling as they think about all that's involved in what religion teaches. You can say God wants us to experience joy, but they feel like they're barred from that. That way, God's way is just too narrow for a lot of folks. There's too many boundaries. You know, the wisest fella that ever lived, wisest man that ever lived, was King Solomon, according to the ancient Hebrew scriptures. He lived in Israel in the Middle East when he came to the throne, his life situation allowed him to live out this boundaryless kind of dream in a way that few others have had the ability to do over the years. His father was King David. You know David from the story of David of Goliath, David and Goliath, most likely. David, his dad, was a tremendous military man. He had great success in all his battles. And by the end of his life, he had accomplished a great deal in terms of gaining land and getting either submission or agreement from all of the enemies around that place. So he was able to hand over to his son Solomon a place where peace was the rule. In an era up to that time where going to war was like a seasonal event, almost like our football season that comes around every year. They had had going to war every year in a certain season. In that kind of place, Solomon felt no threat at all because of what his dad had done for him. That national security, combined with what we see as Solomon's own brilliance, allowed that young king to enjoy unparalleled economic success. In fact, when you look back at history now, all the historians point to the golden age of Israel as being the time of David and the time of Solomon. That success that he had, created an opportunity, a luxury for Solomon to pursue joy in every way known to man. There was religious rules in place then, a lot of them in the nation of Israel, but the king, King Solomon, didn't seem to think that those applied to him then we have some writings of his. He was an accomplished writer. In an essay he wrote about this time in his life, his younger years when he came to the throne. These are kind of the statements at that time that he was making. Listen to these from Ecclesiastes 2. Uh, it's 2, 1, 8, and 10. I jumped around a little bit. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. I had everything a man could desire. And one of his lines was great. I denied myself no pleasure. All that life had to offer was his to enjoy. Jam after jam after jam were at his disposal, right? He should have been the most joyful person that ever lived by those standards. But he wasn't. He wasn't. That frustrated him. That frustrated psalm, he became increasingly empty, soulless, without meaning. The rest of his essay is filled with the word meaningless, meaningless, meaningless over and over again as he explored all the pleasures, physical pleasures, music, power, adventures he went on, great building projects. The financial success he experienced, it was never enough. For king solomon and as the years went by what stalked him in his mind and it comes out in his writings was the inescapable temporary nature of that kind of joy that he was pursuing now i don't want to depress you this morning but he waxed kind of poetic about where he ended up after pursuing all this joy. I was reading it to get ready. We do a little mic check, you know, at the beginning, and all the people around here started to cry, and they were sad. It's very, very, it's very poetic, though. I want to read it to you, and you just see, see what he was feeling after that kind of pursuit. This is in Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 5. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, says Solomon, before the days of trouble come and the years approach, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights, And of dangers in the streets when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire no longer is stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Cheery. Cheery, isn't it? I I came up with another cartoon reference, not just Princess Anna. How about from Winnie the Pooh? He starts out as Tigger, but... He ends up as Eeyore, right? That's kind of how this guy feels. Eventually found Solomon, all joy in life is lost because you can barely see anymore and you can't hear anymore and you've lost the strength in your legs and you're afraid you're gonna fall. You have no strength left. You have no energy even for marital intimacy, which is a big part of his pursuits of pleasure and then you die. (laughs) It's pretty depressing for someone who started out to find life's greatest joys. You know, as I was reading and getting ready for this, I found some really interesting information from the life of Solomon's dad, from David, on this subject of joy. In one of his writings, it's in one of the early Psalms. It's Psalm chapter 4. We'll look at it in a moment. David David was able to capture the difference. In, in real simple terms, he was able to capture the difference between temporary circumstantial joy that Solomon was pursuing and that many people pursue, and a, and a kind of sustainable joy, a greater joy that this Holy Spirit wants to bring into our lives. It's the joy that we, we read about in Galatians 5. I don't know why Solomon didn't pick up on this from his dad. You know, the Psalms are right out there. He could have read them. He probably did. I don't know if Solomon decided, I'm way, I'm way smarter than dad. I don't need to listen to him. Or, you know, I've, I've got way more wealth and power. I don't need to be limited by his simple little concepts of God. Maybe he did hear what his dad said, but he wasn't able to receive it because of what he had seen in his dad's life. You know, David had his successes, but he also had some really deep moral failings within his family, within his own life, and for some reason, whatever it was, Solomon missed it. He missed the wisdom of his father, and David had it right on. King David clearly identifies a different quality of joy that's available to us, and he points out the source of that joy. Listen as I read from Psalm 4. Many people say, who will show us better times? Let your face smile on us, Lord. You have given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvest of grain and new wine. See the distinction there? The circumstantial joy of grain and new wine. were are prosperous. Things are good. Or the joy that God gives. In the NIV that I grew up with, he says that last line this way. God, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abounds. The source of this greater joy, the source that David pointed us to, is the Lord. How do we go about getting it then? How do we get this greater joy, get to a place where we have our hearts filled with joy like David had experienced? Let's go back to God. Let's go back to the God of David. When when we go through the scripture and try to learn about life and joy from the Lord, we find out that joy is not an end in itself. It's an end result. It's a byproduct of decisions that I make by faith to please God. You hear what I'm saying there? Joy is an end result of me making decisions by faith to be pleasing to God. That message comes through over and over in the Bible characters of old. We see people just like you and me, I mean, straight up regular folks. They have their successes. They have their failures. There's nothing magic about them. We see people just like you and me commended by God for their faith, said to be pleasing to God because of their faith, because they make their life decisions not on cravings, or desires, or fantasies, or hopes, they make their decisions based on faith. So what was their faith in? What moved these people to wanna to please this God? Was the faith that was pleasing to God, was it, is, was it just that uh, God was a dictator, and he set out all these commands, and they understood they had to obey right now without question or else? Was that the way their faith was built? Not at all. The faith that God was commending people for came out of this really interesting understanding that his people had. We sang about it briefly in one of the songs this morning. I noticed that. I thought it was kind of cool. The the faith they had came out of their positions as co-members with God in a very unique, very specific arrangement known as a covenant. Heard that word before, a covenant a mutually beneficial arrangement where God binds himself to people and people bind themselves to God. I read uh, an excerpt from a book, a fellow named Os Guinness, and his book is Last Call for Liberty. This is how he uh, defined a covenant. He's a brilliant fellow, and I really liked what he had to say. A covenant is based on the foundational moral act of one person making a solemn promise to another person, or in God's case, to many others, this promise is both an expression of freedom and an assumption of responsibility. Thus, people who covenant make a morally informed and morally binding mutual pledge to each other that creates trust. And the trust created by this mutual pledge is all important because it replaces the need for force and regulation In relationships, it acts as the glue that binds as well as the oil that smooths. We might say lubricates, the oil that smooths. The faith that David and some of those old other Bible characters like Daniel and Samuel and Esther and Samson, the faith those folks operated under was the certainty that God would honor his part of the covenant with them, that he had bound himself to them. And whatever he directed for their lives would be for their good. It would be rewarding. It would be joy producing in their life. In the course of living to please the Lord, we will naturally experience joy. You know why that is? Because he made us in his image. We are made in the image of God. And whatever brings joy to his heart, Will bring joy to ours as we set about pleasing Him with our decisions. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? The difficulty comes in the distractions, in the number of options we have from which to decide among the choices God advocates and everything else that we could choose in our lives. I was thinking about Adam and Eve the very first father and mother. I thought faith is not an easy thing to apply, is what I wrote, because in our free will, we have the privilege to see all the apples on all the trees, right? We don't just see the apples God wants us to have. We get to to choose from all the apples on all the trees. And some of those apples look pretty desirable. (laughs) To be able to trust that we're selecting rightly, that we're selecting wisely, requires us to have faith. Faith to say yes to what God approves of in life. Let me show you how that's explained in Hebrews 11:6. I love this verse. I feel like it kind of captures a good chunk of what I'm trying to say here. It says this, it is, is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. What David found is that sustainable joy. That sustainable joy is part of the reward that God gives us as we receive and, uh, his, his commands and instructions as we sincerely seek him. When we fulfill our side of a covenant pledge with God. It's not a force thing. It's not a fear thing. It's always going to be a choice. It will always be a choice for you and me. So how will you choose? We have to decide daily. Is God going to be my jam? Will God be my jam? Or will I keep pursuing lesser joys that can never fulfill me? I imagine... You guys experience what I do in terms of temptation to one degree or another. There's certain uh, passions. There's certain guilty pleasures I see advertised sometimes. There's certain temptations that we allow to take hold in our lives. Even though we know that they won't satisfy us, even though that we know they won't provide lasting meaning, Maybe it's certain foods that we're tempted to gluttony on. Maybe it's alcohol or drugs or R-rated movies or overdoing it on sports and entertainment. I used really, really tame examples, didn't I, of things that might draw our hearts away that we think will give us joy. There's a lot less tame examples than these that we could use of things that can get a hold of us in our lives Things that hold the promise of joy, but they lie. They lie. Joy was never meant to function that way. We're not one dimensional creatures just in pursuit of some experience. That kind of joy is not sustainable. And when life's unavoidable troubles come, and they, they come, they come to all of us, don't they? That joy is so easily stolen by our enemy, and we're just left with grief. I think that's what kind of happened to our friend King Solomon. I think that's why he wrote such sad, poetic words at the end of his pursuits. The joy that is part of God's reward for faith, the joy that is found in pleasing God, is legitimate joy. It's joy that doesn't go away. It's lasting joy. It's present through the unavoidable troubles of life. That's why, brothers and sisters, it only makes sense to find out what it is that pleases God. We don't just seem to know that. We aren't born with that. We have to make that our pursuit. That's why we come here all the time. That's why we engage with the word of God and materials like that. We have to make it our life goal to find out what pleases God and do it. And that will produce this sustainable joy, almost like a reflexive action in our lives. How we indulge or control our appetites how we deal with authorities in our lives that we really don't respect but God wants us to honor, how we choose who to share our love with, how we handle our finances, all these things can be divined by looking into God's Word and finding how we can please Him in those areas of our life. When we align our decisions with His expectations, we have a much better opportunity for meaningful joy. Not just some fanciful distractions or escapes from reality for a time. Why is the joy meaningful? Why is it lasting? Because we're engaged with an eternal being who embodies joy. It's just part of who he is. He's eternal, he's forever. We're eternal beings. And this covenant relationship that God makes available to us is an open door to forever. It's our open door to forever for our souls. One of Jesus' disciples named Peter figured this one out. And he shared these wonderful words with us referring to our relationship with God. This is 1 Peter 1, through 8-9. I told you I was going to give you a lot of scriptures. I got a few more and then we'll be done. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 8 through 8-9, though you have not seen him, Peter says, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are, what? Filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. not that beautiful? That's the joy we're talking about. It's a glorious, inexpressible joy that carries beyond this life into eternal life. Sustainable joy. You know, it wouldn't be right to finish this morning without recognizing the just practical fact that many of us are hungry for joy in our lives, but but life is getting in our way. All of us experience, as we said earlier, Times that threaten to steal the joy from our lives, to eliminate the joy in our lives. The Bible calls these times Trials, with a capital T. Look at the promise and the expectation we can have about our God-given joy when trials threaten to overwhelm us. This is from James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If we can gain that perspective, that the Lord is working for our eternal good, even through the toughest times that we experience in life, the times that turn Solomon to sadness and despair can give us rather an opportunity for joy that God is working on my completion, that this will be for good one day because this eternal good God is working to mature me and make me complete. It's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Because I don't want to go through the trial. It's a hard teaching, but God is not asking us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. Our last scripture for the day is from Hebrews chapter 12. It talks about how Jesus dealt with this problem of trying to reconcile joy with trials. And look at what our Lord was willing to do for joy. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, it says, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What was the joy that was set before Jesus that he was willing to endure that? It was you. It was you. It was me. Jesus had faith in us that we would see that kind of self-sacrifice, that unselfish love, and our hearts would be so moved by that that we would want to respond. That kind of loving sacrifice by a good God is worthy of our response. If you've never pledged yourself into this kind of covenant relationship that God offers, I hope you'll consider doing that today. We're going to stand and have a prayer in a minute. If you, guys, if you guys want to go ahead and do that, we can. You can, right where you stand, make this kind of commitment in your heart as I pray in a few moments. And say that to God. I would like to be part of that kind of covenant with you, God. I would like to know that kind of sustainable joy in my life. You know, it's interesting. Jesus' disciple, Peter had another passage, we won't read it, but he talked about baptism. You know, we counsel people when you're ready to show your faith in Christ, you need to be baptized, you need to be immersed in water, and we've got a tank right over here. That's why Greg looked a little rough up there on the screen this morning. He had a towel on him because they were baptizing people in the river. You know what Peter says baptism is? He says it's a pledge. It's a pledge of a good conscience toward God. So if you think you might want to make that commitment between you and God and you want to take it a step further, God would would instruct you, make your pledge by allowing someone to baptize you. We would be happy to help you with that if you have a desire to do that soon or talk to someone. It doesn't have to be one of us. Really appreciate you guys' attention this morning. If there's anything we can do to help you feel free to ask I will stay around afterwards if you just want someone to pray about something kind of like Greg usually does he's, he's really good at it but I'll do my best so why don't we bow and we'll have a closing prayer Lord our joy comes from your heart we're so thankful that you want to build that kind of life in us and pray that we would um, Lay aside whatever it might be that's holding us back from you. Help us with a sense of uh, freedom and obligation. Lay our lives before you. Bury the old way and come up out of the water to a new life with you. We're so thankful that you don't just overpower us, that you give us this choice. Help us to choose wisely, God. Help us each day to choose wisely and not just give into things that might produce joy for a moment when we can have it for eternity with you. Bless our team in Israel. Give them safety coming back. Touch the hearts of each one here, Lord. You know their needs, you know their joys, you know their sorrows. Just be very near in your presence as you've been throughout this worship service today. Bless us as we go, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.